Okay. So we come to the end of Daniel chapter 2 in our study this morning, and we're studying the dream that God had given to King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar went to bed one night wondering what would become of his kingdom in the future, and God gave him a dream to basically answer that question. He gave him a dream that was so frightening, that was so terrible, that it woke Nebuchadnezzar up, and he couldn't get back to sleep. It was a dream that was so disturbing that he was willing to kill every wise man in Babylon over it because his wise men couldn't tell him what the dream meant, what the dream was and what the dream meant. That is, until God gave Daniel uh, a shot at it. God used Daniel to reveal the dream to the king and allow him to not only be reminded what the dream was, but also Daniel was able to tell him what the dream meant. Now, in the king's dream, just as a recap, there was an enormous statue made out of several different elements. It started off at the top with the head of gold, then it went down to the arms and the breast of silver, then it went to the belly and the thighs of bronze, and then there were legs of iron and feet of both iron and clay mixed. And while he was looking up at this immense and terrible statue, a stone that was cut out without hands came in and struck the statue at the feet destroying not only the feet, but causing the entire structure to turn to just to dust like chaff and blow away in the wind. And while he looked on, the stone became a mountain that filled the whole earth. Now this was the dream. Daniel could reveal this dream to the king because God wanted Daniel to reveal the dream to the king. Daniel didn't have any wisdom of his own in this. It was God that gave Daniel this wisdom. And Daniel made sure that everyone was aware that it was God who was able to give the king what he was looking for. Now, in our last study, we covered verses 37 through 40, where we saw most of the details of the statue that the king had seen in his dream. And we noted that the different levels of the statue corresponded to four different kingdoms or four different world powers. And we stopped in our discussion of the fourth kingdom, the kingdom of iron. Now these four kingdoms or world powers, each of these was a real, physical, earthly kingdom. A Gentile kingdom that was given dominion upon the earth during what we know as the times of the Gentiles. The time when God has turned his attention away from the nation of Israel and has given authority over them to Gentile nations. It was this time that Jesus was referring to in Luke 21, 24, and it's a time that stretches from the Babylonian captivity all the way until Christ returns to the earth. So this is a, a time that has yet to come to completion. It's a time that we are still in today. One thing to note about what Jesus says in Luke 21, 24 is that during this time, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And this has to do with the condition of the city of Jerusalem, the physical, actual city itself. It will be trampled underfoot. There will be a Gentile presence, influence, or authority in the city of Jerusalem until this time is complete. This is important to note because as we look into events associated with these prophecies, especially with the events that are still future to us, we need to keep in mind the scope of these prophecies and their fulfillment. 
These are Gentile nations that had physical dominion over Israel, over Jerusalem. And as we've seen, as we've looked at them thus far, they all had authority in their empires over certain parts of the world. And we looked at most of these in detail last time. And remember, it started off with the gold head, which was Babylon, which was led by Nebuchadnezzar. Then we had the Medo-Persian Empire, which was the arms and the chest of silver. Then came the Greeks, and the Greeks were represented by the belly and the thighs of bronze. And then there was the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, which was represented by the legs of iron. And that's as far as we got as we were looking at this last time. Now, as we said in our last study, the Roman Empire was the last world empire. The Roman Empire is the last empire that it could be said ruled the world. And the Roman Empire was gone by about 1534, but the prophecy isn't complete, is it? I mean, we're not done with what Daniel has seen here. Rome is the last worldly kingdom, but there is still more to be seen in this prophecy that God had given to Nebuchadnezzar. And there's more to this prophecy that the world has not yet seen, and more that hasn't happened yet. And so here we are. We are now in the same boat as both Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. As Daniel is explaining this, as Daniel is sitting there explaining this to Nebuchadnezzar and everyone else that was around him to hear this, they were all looking at this as something that was going to happen in the future. The events that we've seen up until now have been in our past. But now, as we are studying this portion of the dream, we are also looking ahead toward the future. So if the Roman Empire is the last world empire, how can there still be more of this left? The answer is, while the Roman Empire is the last, it's not done yet. There is still an element, a part of the empire that hasn't happened yet. There will be a revival of the Roman Empire that is still to occur. And it's that portion of the Roman Empire that's seen in the next section of this interpreted dream. Let's read verses 41 through 43 together. And in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So here he turns to talk about the feet of the statue. The iron mixed with clay, or pottery, right? Remember, this, is, this clay would be like a ceramic, not a soft clay, but a brittle clay. And what we're seeing here is a continuation of the legs of iron. Well, how do we know that? Because of the presence of iron in both. It morphs from iron down into iron and clay. Every other level of the statue went from one distinct substance to another. There was a clear-cut delineation from one to the other. But here, we don't have that. There is a change, but it's not an absolute change. It's a morphing from one to the other. We still have the iron, but now this ceramic-type substance is mixed in with the iron. Now, how does iron mix with clay? 
The answer is it, it doesn't. And that's really the point of it. Look again at what it says at the end of verse 43. They will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So what we're seeing here is that this is not an ideal union. This is not a well-defined state that this kingdom is going to find itself in. It's an inconsistent mixture that we see here. It's a, it, and this kingdom will not be on solid footing. What does this indicate to us? That the Roman Empire, while it was once strong and adhered well, will someday be revived into a kingdom that will be shaky, that will have its share of problems and difficulties. Look at some of the things that it says in verse 41. It says that it will be a divided kingdom. Verse 42 says it's partly strong and partly brittle. Verse 43, they will not adhere to one another. This is going to be a kingdom that has issues, a kingdom that does not enjoy unification under an imperial head, a strong central rule of authority. This kingdom will be divided, and a kingdom divided against itself can't stand, right? At least not for very long. Now, one of the things that we have seen in all of the kingdoms so far is that as we've moved down the statue from the head on down, they have gotten stronger in might, they've gotten stronger in military power, but they have decreased in value. And in verse 39, we saw Daniel tell Nebuchadnezzar that the next kingdom will be inferior to him. And I believe that indicates a pattern from one kingdom to the next, all the way down to the feet. There's an inferiority that, that continues on down this statue. So the kingdoms decrease in quality. Well, in what way do they decrease in quality? Well, we talked a little bit about it last time, but it's in the headship. It's in the ruling element of these kingdoms. It started off with Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of kings. God declared that Nebuchadnezzar was the king of kings. He had absolute authority. Then the Medo-Persian Empire came in, but the Medo-Persian Empire was a divided kingdom. They had rulership between two different people. Then when the Greeks came under Alexander, he was strong, but he only ruled for about 12 years. He was 33 years old when he died. After that, the kingdom was split up into, in, amongst his four generals who proceeded to fight amongst themselves and, and divide this kingdom up into different parts for the next 200 years or so. Then we had Rome. And what was Rome known for? Well, Rome had their emperors, but they also had their senate. Their emperors controlled the military. The senate represented the people. And so they had a system of government that was led by multiple people. And they were at odds with one, of one another many times throughout their history, the, the emperors and the senate. And so you see, as we go down the list, we have more and more people. We have governments of men in charge of things, which cause disruption, which cause division. And this serves to make these kingdoms decrease in value. They become less and less stable. And this continues on until we get to the feet. Then it's brought out in the clearest detail. It will be seen from the start as being a divided and brittle kingdom. And this gets interesting. Look at the beginning of verse 41 again. There it says, And in that you saw the feet and toes. Note what Daniel adds here to the description. Earlier in verses 33 and 34, it was just the feet in view. Now he mentions the feet and toes. Now look at verse 42. 
And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. Now what's the focus when he gets to verse 42? Now we've moved on to just focusing on the toes, the toes of the feet. As we get into more and more detail of this part of the statue, our focus shifts more and more to just the toes, as if there's some significance to the toes. And in fact, there is some significance here. Now turn with me over to Daniel chapter 7. In chapter 7, many years later in his life, Daniel is writing about his own dream that he had concerning four beasts. And what do you suppose those four beasts represent? They represent four world empires. They represent these same four world empires. Now, we won't go into great detail in this as much as I'd like to, but we'll, we'll wait because we will get to this chapter in due time. But look at part of the dream that he has in verse 7 of Daniel 7. He says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. Now, does that sound familiar? Do you see the similarities with this fourth kingdom here, and the, or the fourth beast here, and the fourth one that we saw in chapter 2? With the teeth of iron, it devours, it crushes, it tramples other kingdoms. This, again, is the Roman Empire. When I look at how the verse ends, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. It has how many horns? Ten, right? Ten horns. How many toes does the statue in chapter 2 have? Well, it doesn't explicitly say there, but we know that this is a statue of a man, and so therefore, ten toes, right? There are ten toes in the statue of the man. So in both cases, what we see here is that there are ten elements that make up a part of this kingdom that play a significant part in the Roman Empire. Now, stay with me here. Not that you're not, but but there are things that are characterizing the Roman Empire here that we do not get from history that have never been true of Rome before. Never had a tenfold division. There was never a time when there were ten elements that made up the, the, the Roman Empire. So what are we seeing? We're seeing an element of the Roman Empire that is yet to come, that hasn't happened yet. You see, some try to argue that this must not be Rome, right? And, and of course, there's like I, I've mentioned before, there are all kinds of people that want to discredit Daniel, that want to take things away, that want to interpret things differently, things like that. But, they want to, but what some people do is they want to say that this must not be Rome, and they come up with some different ways to split up these kingdoms. But all of those have major problems, because you can't point to this type of division in any of the other kingdoms that they talk about in either. If you try to find another kingdom in history that this could refer to, it doesn't exist. So the only thing that really makes sense here is that this is a part of the Roman Empire that has yet to occur on earth. Daniel was looking ahead and seeing all of this in the future. He was seeing ahead down the passage of time. To him, it was all related. To him, it was all connected. But what is the difficulty that people have with this today? There's currently no Roman Empire. 
People get nervous when they can't see or touch something that they think they should be able to see or touch. There is no Roman Empire today. It ended many years ago, so they panic and they look for other explanations for this. As another example of this, something that's very similar, I talked a little bit last week about Israel. How there are many who believe that the church has replaced Israel. Well, where did that come from? That came about in history when people in the church looked around and what did they see? A thousand years ago, what did they see? There's no Israel anymore. There is no Israel. They weren't in their land. There was no nation of Israel anymore. They had been scattered. They appeared to be gone. Well, now what? Well, now the panic starts. Let's create a new explanation for this. Let's look for some other for something else other than God still has a plan for the nation of Israel because he must not since there's no more Israel. And so people start to come up with their own ideas. They start to look for other explanations. Anything that can settle this issue in their mind that can satisfy their impatience or really it comes down to a distrust or lack of faith in God's plan. So that's exactly what we're, um, yeah, what we're seeing here. I mean, with Israel, right, we, we know now we see something different, right? We see that Israel's back in their land. We see that there is a nation of Israel again. Now, that's not to say that something won't happen to them again. I mean, maybe they're in the land now for a while. Maybe they'll be scattered again. We don't know that. We, the, God's plans for Israel may not happen for a long time yet. We hope not, but, we, but it may not. But that doesn't mean that we look at it and say, oh, I guess they were right. There is nothing more for Israel. No, then it's just... It's just delayed some more. But as we come back here to Rome, for some the thought is, well, okay, there's no more Rome, so let's bring back the panic because Rome doesn't exist anymore. Well, no, let's not bring back the panic. Let's trust that even when we can't see how God is going to accomplish something, that he can still accomplish it. We don't need to know or understand it all. We just need to trust that God had it all planned out and that he can accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish. Somehow, in some way, the Roman Empire is going to be revived. It's going to come back. Now, I know there are a number of theories, speculations on how this is going to occur, right? People throw out the European Union. People throw out the Roman Catholic Church, things like that. And and I'm not going to go into the theories on how it's going to happen. I'll freely admit, I have no idea how the Roman Empire is going to be involved. I don't know if the pieces are already in place for this today. So again, I'm not going to go into all the theories um, of who it is, European Union, Roman Catholic Church, things like that. Um, uh, but we're going to, what we are going to do um, is we're going to look at, at um, some of the indicators from, that Daniel reveals here in chapter 2. There are a few things that the prophecy bears out that we do know for sure. And so I'll go over... Uh, some of what these things are. So the first thing to note when we talk about when these things are going to happen and what this kingdom is, the first thing to note is that it will be identified as or with the Roman Empire. There will be no question that this is the Roman Empire revived in some way. There will be no question, um, as as Daniel is looking ahead in time, he makes... It known that this empire of iron flows right into the empire of clay, um, of iron and clay together. 
It's obvious to him that this is the same kingdom. He doesn't mention any delineation. He doesn't mention this as any type of fifth kingdom. Um, And therefore, when Rome is revived, I think it's going to be obvious to the world as well that that's what this is. Now, again, we don't know how that's going to play out. We don't know exactly how God's going to do that. But at the time that it happens, I think it'll it'll be obvious. There will be no question that this empire and the previous Roman Empire are somehow tied together. And the next thing to note about it is that this kingdom will be a divided kingdom. There will be divisions to it. The kingdom will have problems. It will be strong militarily. It will have the strength of iron, but it will also have the brittleness of clay. And the two, like we've seen, really don't mix. One of the key indicators of this is seen in a phrase found in verse 43. If you read verse verse 43 again, it says, And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. Now here is a source of the division, or the source of the division. The iron and the clay don't mix, and the reason for it, it says here, is that they are combined in the seed of men. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's a good question. Commentators are mixed on what this means. Several different theories are out there, but it's clear that the seed of men plays some role in this division. It's responsible for this uneasy alliance. Well, in what way is it responsible? Well, that's the question. That's what people can't agree on, but I'll tell you what what I believe that it's talking about here. I believe that this means that there are too many people involved in this empire, too many people making the decisions. This is not going to be a unified kingdom because there's going to be too much human influence in the decision-making, too many people. And that's really the pattern that we've seen throughout history as we've made our way down the levels of this statue. There's going to be too much democratic process, if you will, going on to make this form of the Roman Empire completely united. It will not have a strong centralized ruler. You've heard the phrase, too many cooks in the kitchen? Well, they're going to have too many cooks in the kitchen. That's going to play out in government. And I, I, okay, I won't get into government discussions today. And this brings us to the third thing that we need to be, that we know to be true about the Roman Empire. Number three is it will have ten divisions, ten parts. The revived Roman Empire will consist of ten parts, some type of ten-nation confederacy, you hear the the phrase used. Ten rulers, ten distinct entities in some way. When the Roman Empire is revived, it will be characterized by ten parts coming together in an alliance. That's indicated by the ten toes, and in chapter 7, by the ten horns. And this is actually revisited in the book of Revelation where it talks about ten horns there as well. And we're not going to spend the time to get into all of this now because we'll, we'll get into much greater detail of all this when we get into chapter 7. But in Daniel 7, we see that out of the ten horns, another horn arises, comes up from among them. And that little horn will end up subduing the other ones and assuming control from them. And who is that little horn? That's the Antichrist. The Antichrist comes up. These, are, these other ten horns will give their power and authority to the Antichrist, and he will take over in this final form of the kingdom. 
These 10 leaders of 10 distinct areas that make up the revived Roman Empire will not get along. They will have problems. And when Antichrist comes along with the solution to all their problems, they will readily give their authority over to him. Now I'm getting ahead of myself because this isn't all laid out, laid out for us here. What we see here in Daniel chapter 2 is just an overview of these events. Well, I want you to understand where all this is going or how all of this is going to eventually end up playing out. Here in chapter 2, we see that there is the potential for 10 elements, but we don't get much description of this. There's no mention at all of the little horn or a little toe or anything like that, but that's not really the point here. The point here is that these will be the progressions of the kingdoms right up until the end. Now, there's one more characteristic of this Roman Empire that will be true, and I've mentioned this before. But it will be an earthly kingdom that has dominion over the land of Israel, which is kind of like what we were talking about with Rome. There is something, this is something in common with all the kingdoms before it. From Babylon to the first phase of Rome, they all occupied the land that was given over to Israel. Remember, we saw before in our introduction that one of the identifying characteristics of the times of the Gentiles was that Jerusalem was trampled underfoot by them. The Gentiles were occupying the city. And this was true of all the previous kingdoms. They actually set foot in Jerusalem. They occupied that land. Now, when we come to the final phase of the Roman Empire, why should we expect anything different? I don't believe that we should. We should expect this final form of the Roman Empire to have the same physical occupation of the land that the others did right up until the very end. We get to verses 44 and 45, 44 and 45, where the action takes place with this statue. We're going to see the Gentile nations destroyed by the stone, and all authority is going to be restored to the one true King of kings and Lord of lords. Um, let's see here. It was this kingdom that is seen with the um, introduction of the stone, right? The revived Roman Empire basically is going to be, will be the kingdom that is in power when Christ returns to set up his kingdom on earth. And it was this kingdom that's seen with the introduction of the stone. But the, stone is, uh, the statue is destroyed by this stone, the stone that is cut out without hands, and it comes in and it strikes the statue at the feet and it crushes the whole thing. It's all turned to dust. Now, before I go on, I want to point out a couple of things with this picture here. The statue takes us through linear time. Kingdom to kingdom to kingdom, one after the other throughout history. They are real kingdoms. They had real beginnings and ends to their reigns on the earth throughout history. There is a flow of time here, and the events that take place with the stone happen at a particular point in that timeline. Which is the second point that I need to make, is that when the stone comes in, it destroys the feet and the rest of the statue at one time, or in verse 35 it says, at the same time. The end of the kingdom or kingdoms is not a gradual event, it is an event that takes place all in one fell swoop at a particular point in time. And when does the mountain fill the whole earth? Before or after the, the statue is destroyed. After it's destroyed, the statue is gone, it's blown away, and then the mountain fills the earth. Okay, 
So keep those points in mind. We'll lock those away for now, and we'll bring them up here in a little bit. Now, as we come down to verse 44, we see what this stone and this mountain signify in this dream. It says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Now we have another kingdom, a fifth kingdom involved here. A kingdom that will be set up by God and it will be the last kingdom. Now look at, take a look at the beginning phrase again. In the days of those kings. Well, what kings is he referring to here is the question that people have. Daniel hasn't been really talking about any kings He mentioned that the head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar, but other than that, he mentioned kingdoms, not kings. And there is a difference in the word between kings and kingdoms. So what's he talking about? Well, some people think that he's talking about the four kingdoms, that he's referring to Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But there are several problems with that. The first being that with the exception of Babylon, these kingdoms were not identified as having individual heads. In fact, as we've studied them, we've found what? We've found that these kingdoms have gotten less valuable as they've gone on because of the leadership of the kingdoms. So if this was a reference to these four kingdoms, then they would be characterized by their sole headship or their absolute monarchies. And with the exception of Babylon, that wasn't the case. The second thing is, if these, kingdoms were in view, if these four kingdoms were in view here, then this kingdom that Daniel is talking about would have existed during their time. Look at what it says again. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. In the days of those kings, if those days were the days of the Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman empires, then this kingdom would have already been established. Because it says that God will set up his kingdom in their days. Now this kingdom has not yet been established, much less established way back in Nebuchadnezzar's day. There does not currently exist a kingdom on earth that will never be destroyed and will never be left for another people, and that has existed since the Babylonian kingdom. So the kingdom would not... um, Okay, the third thing, let me just move on. I'm trying to balance time here a little bit. So the third thing, the image of this kingdom being established is seen as an absolute and immediate occurrence. Remember our previous points that I told you to tuck away. One of them was that this is an instantaneous event, not a gradual event that takes place over time. It's not a destruction that takes place over thousands of years, which is what the establishment of this kingdom would have to be if it were taking place during these four kingdoms all the way from 605 B.C. up until now at least. That's not the picture in the dream. That's not what is seen in the interpretation here either. So this isn't talking about those four kingdoms, but if this isn't talking about those four kingdoms, then what does Daniel mean when he says those kings in the days of those kings? Well, the answer lies in what we've been talking about when we've referred back to Daniel 7, with the vision that Daniel will receive there. Turn with me over to Daniel 7 one more time. And we looked earlier at verse 7 where we saw the fourth beast and we saw the ten horns that were on its head. We'll look down at verse 23 as we see part of the interpretation of this vision. 
Daniel 7.23 says, that he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from the, all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth, and it will tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. Well, look at that. What are these ten horns? They are ten kings, it says. It doesn't say ten kingdoms. This, these are ten kings. Well, guess what? That's the same word used in Daniel 2.44. Here are our kings in these last days, in the days of these ten kings. I mentioned earlier that Revelation talks about the same point in time and uses some of the same imagery. And Revelation 17.12 says, And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. The apostle John saw the same imagery as Daniel, and it had the same meaning. So this is the time that we're talking about here. We're talking about the latter days, the days when these final ten kings are around and they are leading the revived Roman Empire, and by extension, they're leading the world. So from a timing perspective, we're talking about the days of those kings and the days when this revived Roman Empire is in power on the earth, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will endure forever. This is the divine kingdom. This is the kingdom of God that is being established. That part is without question. Daniel says it right here that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom and this kingdom will last forever. And biblical scholars agree that this is the kingdom that's in view here. What they don't agree on is the makeup of that kingdom. What type of kingdom is it or what kind of kingdom will it be? Has it already been established? Is it still to come? What form will it be in? Things like this. And this is where the debate comes in. So let's look at what we see here. What, what things are going to characterize this kingdom that God is going to set up? First of all, we see the timing of the kingdom. It comes in the days of those kings, as we've already seen. The kingdom is established during the latter days, the days of the revived Roman Empire. This kingdom is established at the end of the seven-year tribulation. We haven't really talked about the tribulation yet. We'll get to that in our study of Daniel. But, but that's the point of time where it comes, when Jesus Christ returns to the earth. At that time, Jesus will return to establish his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. And after that time, he will deliver his kingdom up to God the Father, at which point the kingdom will continue on in the new earth for all eternity. The timing for when all this begins is when the stone comes in and strikes the statue at the feet during the time of those ten kings. The picture is pretty clear here for the starting point. Now the debate on this comes from those who deny a literal 1,000-year earthly kingdom or a literal millennial kingdom, which is clearly talked about in the book of Revelation. And these would be, you hear the term, amillennialists. They dispute this timing for the start of the kingdom of God. All millennialists believe that the kingdom has already been established and we're living in it today. It exists around us right now. They would say that there is no literal 1,000-year kingdom and that the kingdom exists today in a spiritual sense instead and that it's not a real physical kingdom and will eventually culminate with the return of Christ who will then set up an eternal kingdom. So when we come to Daniel chapter 2, in their eyes, this kingdom isn't really established at the end of the tribulation, but it was already established when, when the church was established. Now we'll look at the details 
uh, of that in a few different sections, but the first part of that we need to look at right now has to do with, again, the timing. Does that fit the timing here is what we're seeing with Daniel, and it, and it really doesn't. And here's why. With this view, the kingdom was established when the church was established, and the church was established back around 33 AD, right? It's clear here in Daniel that the coming of the kingdom destroys the other kingdoms, including Rome, the final kingdom. Now forget just a minute the future aspect of the kingdom, the revived aspect, the iron and the clay, which is totally relevant, but let's just put that on the back burner for now and just focus on the early part of the Roman Empire. Do we remember when the, Rome, when the Roman Empire stopped ruling the world as an empire? The Western Empire was around 500 A.D. The Eastern Empire was around 1534 A.D. The Roman Empire was around for over 1,500 more years when the church was in existence, which, remember, all millennialists say was the time of the kingdom in view here um, in Daniel chapter 2. So what does that mean? It means that this stone that comes flying in and smashes the feet of the statue, smashes the final empire, and reduces the rest of the statue to dust, must have taken 1,500 years to accomplish. At least, because again, we're not even dealing with the feet. So do you think Nebuchadnezzar dreamed that this was that slow of an event? I don't think so. That's not the imagery that we get here. The stone came in, crushing the Roman Empire, and to top it off, it's clear that when this kingdom is established on earth, when the mountain fills the earth, the other empires are gone. The other empires have been blown away. So the question that has to be answered is, how can you have both the kingdom of God and the Roman Empire existing at the same time? With what we see in this dream, which is where it's all introduced, they can't exist together. The previous kingdoms are gone when this kingdom has been set up by God. So to say that this kingdom is the church really doesn't work. Now the timing that we see here is that this kingdom is established after the Roman Empire is gone. And so even if we take out the feet of iron and clay, which again, we shouldn't do anyway, but this couldn't have occurred until around 1534 at the earliest. So the timing is the first characteristic to consider. But here's another. Another is the scope of the kingdom. What do we see here? Look back at verse 35. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The kingdom will cover the whole earth. The kingdom of God will rule over the entire earth. These are all kingdoms that had rule and authority on the earth. We're talking about a distinction from the other kingdoms. Babylon, the undisputed champion of its day, Medo-Persia, the same, Greece and Rome were all indisputably the reigning empires of their day. Now this kingdom comes in, takes out all the others, so that it is the only one standing, and what does it look like? It's a mountain that fills the entire earth. It has sovereign reign and control over the entire earth. I look around me today, and I don't see that. That's not happening. Now, don't get me wrong. God is sovereignly in control of all things today. 
just as he has always been in control and will always be in control. And we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 4. But that's not what this is talking about here. What's in view here is the time when Jesus Christ will be ruling and reigning on the earth and when every single person in the world is in subjection to him. When there is no open sin and rebellion, when every knee shall bow before the Lord and Savior on the throne. That is obviously, you look out there today, that is not happening today. That will happen in the future, after Jesus returns to earth in glory and establishes his kingdom on this earth. That's what's in view here, a literal earthly kingdom possessing the same characteristics as these other kingdoms in the sense that it will exist physically on the earth. It will have dominion over the entire earth. And really, that brings us to the third characteristic, the impact of this kingdom on the other kingdoms. It destroys the other kingdoms. It supersedes them all for all eternity. This will truly be the final kingdom in human history because it will be the perfect kingdom. It will be the kingdom that God determined from eternity past that man was created to function under. And it will be ruled by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords himself, the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There will never be another. That authority has been given to others throughout human history, but during this time, it will belong to Jesus Christ alone. It is at this time that the times of the Gentiles will be over. Once and for all, Jerusalem will no longer be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Why? Because Jesus Christ will be rolling on his throne in the city of David, in Jerusalem. Isaiah 9.6 tells us that the government will rest on his shoulders. He will be ruling and reigning on the earth. Look at how Daniel put it in verse 45. He says, Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of this mountain, out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God um, has made known to the king what will take place in the future. He once again brings up the visions from the dream. The stone cut out without hands, the other kingdoms crushed by the stone. This is what will take place in the future. God has made this known to Daniel who is making it known to the king, is answering the question that he started out wondering about the night he fell asleep dreaming this dream. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar falls asleep wondering, what's going to happen in the future? What's going to happen with my kingdom? What is the significance of the stone? Is the stone the kingdom or is the mountain the kingdom? The stone turns into the mountain, remember? The characteristics of the kingdoms come full circle here. The king and the kingdom are one. They are inseparable. Remember the head of gold, right? When we talked about the head of gold, the head of gold was Babylon, but more specifically, it was also Nebuchadnezzar. Down throughout history, the kingdoms lost that sense of absolute rule and authority. But in the end, when Christ returns to the earth and establishes his kingdom, they will once again be one and the same. It is his kingdom and he is the king. The stone that comes in and smashes the other kingdoms is Jesus Christ. He was cut out without hands. Some people take this to indicate his virgin birth or or even his resurrection, but I think it's much simpler than that. 
I believe it's simply a reference to the fact that, that he stands alone. He is totally unique. That he had no origin, he had no beginning, no end. His existence is not based on the involvement of anyone or anything else. God relies on no one else. So the stone is Jesus Christ. He will return again. He will destroy the Gentile rule and the nations. And he will set up his kingdom and rule forever. That, O King Nebuchadnezzar, is what the future holds for your mighty empire. And Daniel puts an exclamation point on it. Look at the end of verse 45. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. In other words, you can take that to the bank. I'm paraphrasing, but that's similar type wording, right? Without question, this is what's going to happen. Well, as we come to verse 46... We see that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't disagree or dispute it in any way. And we see the impact that this has on him. Look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and a fragrant incense. There was no question in Nebuchadnezzar's mind that Daniel had interpreted this correctly. He, he knew all that Daniel said was true. Um, he gets down, or he doesn't question it at all. So for whatever reason, whether he remembered the dream finally as Daniel's relating it or what it is, but he doesn't, he doesn't dispute it or, or argue it about it in any way. He gets down off of his throne and falls on his face, and it says, it says here that he pays homage to Daniel. This is a word that means to worship. It's the same word that will be used in chapter 3, verse 5, where the inhabitants of Babylon are commanded to fall down and worship a golden image. The picture here is that the king of Babylon, the king of kings as decreed by God himself, fell down on his face and worshiped Daniel. He had his servants bring in offerings to present to him. So while, so while at first, so that, that's the picture here. So while at first it appears as if Nebuchadnezzar is worshiping Daniel, in verse 47, we, we see really what's going on here. Verse 47, it says, The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. See, what's going on here is that Nebuchadnezzar is not really worshiping Daniel per se, but I believe this is Nebuchadnezzar's attempt, attempt at worshiping God. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying it's an acceptable way for him to do it. This was not a God-honoring way for him to do it. But really, this was the first acknowledgement by Nebuchadnezzar of the power of God, the power of what he saw as Daniel's God. All right? Really, his first introduction to the power of God. He was in awe of the might of God working through his servant Daniel. And this was the only way at this point in time that he knew how to worship him. Nebuchadnezzar had no concept of what it really meant to worship God. He didn't understand anything about God at this time. And we'll see that this acknowledgement is really short-lived as we look um, at in the next chapter of him setting up a golden image of himself for the people to worship um, but at this point in time, he at least seems to understand that God is truly the God of all gods. He is truly the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, which is really quite an acknowledgement by a pagan king, someone who was the leader of the world at this time. Well, we see how this wraps up in the last two verses. Look at verses 48 to 49, which we'll look at quickly. 
Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Remember the options that Nebuchadnezzar gave to the wise men clear back at the very beginning? You tell me the dream and its interpretation. In verse 6 it says, You will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor, or I'll kill you if you don't. Those were the options, right? Well, Nebuchadnezzar here is true to his word. This is the beginning of Daniel's career in Babylonian government, you could say. He received his gifts and he got a great promotion. A promotion over the other wise men, which, if you think about it, is actually very impressive considering that he wasn't even one of the wise men that had been called into the king's presence in the first place. Remember, they went and got Daniel later. In fact, it was when they came to kill him that he, that he was introduced into this uh, situation. He was at the bottom of the wise man roster. But even beyond that, He was a Jewish captive, and here he was made ruler over the entire province of Babylon. Keep in mind, Daniel was around 18 years old at this time. So you think of all the remarkable blessings that God has given him at this point. What kind of career path was Daniel on? He was not on the world's path, not by any means. He was living an uncompromising life. He was living a life that was obedient and faithful to God, and God was rewarding him for it in a big way. And not only Daniel, but let's not forget about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his three friends, and they were rewarded in this too. Daniel becomes the ruler of the province, and he in turn makes request for his three friends to be placed as administrators as well. And I take it that they were placed in position just below Daniel, and he would have been their boss. And it's fitting to see that Daniel remembered his friends in this. He knew that it it wasn't his spotlight alone. They had all prayed together. They had all remained faithful together. They were all in this together. And so all four of them really are shining examples of living an uncompromising life. And we'll continue to see more of that when we get to chapter 3. So this is the end of the first dream. The first example of prophecy in the book of Daniel. As we continue through the book in coming lessons, we'll see that this dream is really just an overview of what's to come. And when we get to later chapters, we'll see that more and more will be revealed to Daniel in other ways and will give us greater insight into God's plans for the future, the future of the world and the future of Israel. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you once again and we just give you praise, Lord, for... Um, an opportunity to study your word, an opportunity to be in the book of Daniel. We thank you, Lord, for the the plans that you have for the future. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you've laid um, out uh, these plans and laid out things in the world. And we just pray that that as your children, we would be students of the word, that we would be understanding, Lord, what's to come, and that we would live our lives in light of uh, knowing, Lord, what is to come in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for our salvation. We thank you for your son dying on the cross for our sins. And Lord, just paying that penalty that we could never pay ourselves. We thank you for that. We just pray, Lord, that it would be um, our mission in life to be presenting the gospel to others, that we would be sharing that with others, Lord. And, and we look forward to what you have in store for us one day. 
Lord, we thank you uh, again for this time. We just pray for the next hour as well as uh, Josh brings us the word. And we pray, Lord, that you would honor that time and that we would worship you in a way that glorifies and honors you. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.